Hey friends, and welcome to this week's podcast. So I was listening to last week's podcast, which is not something I... I don't want you to think I have a giant ego. I don't listen to the podcast all the way through. I usually check it to make sure that it, it that it came at the right time, which is usually Monday evening or, uh, or Tuesday morning. And I make sure that it just sounds okay, that there wasn't some screw-up, that the right file got attached. I don't know exactly how it all works. So somebody gave me an iPad a few years ago, and we've dropped it a few times. There's a couple cracks in it. But it still works great, and it's what I use mostly to listen to podcasts. Gilbert Gottfried, This American Life, Freakonomics, Studio 360, Mark Marin. I call his podcast the Unfortunately Named Podcast. Uh, and then I check my to make sure that my podcast is working. Anyways, that reminds me, if you want, are a fan of the podcast, please go to the Apple iTunes store and rate the podcast. Apparently somebody told me that, that helps people, more people will be able to find the podcast the more people who rate it. I don't know if that's true, but it couldn't hurt. So help me out and uh, rate the podcast if you're a fan. Uh, so we're, I was saying that, oh yeah, so I was saying that last week's podcast with two guys from NRBQ, I noticed that I must have recorded that introduction to that podcast at four in the morning and I'm guessing I was trying not to wake my family. I don't know because I was kind of whispering and sounded half asleep and totally unenthusiastic, which is of course the opposite of how I feel about all my guests. So I learned something. So I'll never mumble through a podcast introduction again. You have my word. Let's talk about this week's guest, the great Del McCory, bluegrass legend, honest, had a great memory, interesting. Uh, I, I was just, I loved this interview. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Next week, James Kaplan, Frank Sinatra biographer, will be here. I, his two books are fantastic. If you get a chance, pick them up this summer. And that's about it. Here is the great Del McCory. Enjoy. All right, there is the Del McCory band from Del McCory Still Sings Bluegrass, which comes out in a few days. And as I mentioned earlier, Del will be at Symphony Space in New York City on June 7th. Uh, he has won numerous, I don't know, Male Vocalist of the Year, Entertainer of the Year, Album of the Year awards, uh, and I'm thrilled he's here. Del McCory, good morning and welcome to the show. Well, good morning to you, Mike. Uh, you have to excuse me. I tell, I tell you what, I've had this cough since uh, just after Christmas. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm going to a lung specialist now pretty soon. But but I may I might start having a coughing fit right in the middle of this, but you have to excuse me if I do. <laughs> no problem at all. Cough away. Okay. So you were born, uh, I, I, I believe, around York County, Pennsylvania, which, if, if folks don't know, it's in the southeast Pennsylvania, right near, you know, tw- 25 miles to Baltimore. Tell me what life was like growing up. Were your folks uh, listening to music in your house? Yeah, they sure did. Uh, well, I tell you, they would uh, listen to the Grand Ole Opry on a Saturday night, you know, because it was, is it, when I was pretty young, there was, there was nobody, nobody had TV much out there in the country. We, we grew up in the country, you know. Uh, farmers and uh, had cows and horses and all that, you know, chickens and whatever, <laughs> hogs. But uh, my brother, he he played uh, guitar and sang on the radio. He's older than me when I was when I was just a kid, you know. And I learned to play the guitar from him. So he played at a local radio station in your county. Yes, he did Hanover, little town. Well, it ain't a little town. It's a pretty big town, Hanover. So uh, I learned to play the guitar from him, actually. And that's kind of where it all started for me, you know. But we listened to Brando Opry, and I'll tell you, we could, uh, a, lot, a lot of the radio stations around there played uh, hillbilly music or country music or bluegrass music, whatever you want to call it. But that was before bluegrass was called bluegrass. It was Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. They started on the Grand Ole Opry in 1939. But... They never named his music till uh, till up in the sixties, you know. Oh, so I didn't realize yeah. nobody did. No one use the the phrase as as a genre until the sixties. Yeah, true. Sure, they did. Uh, there, probably a disc jockey named his music because you know it was different than anybody else's music. But uh, even when I worked for Bill, you see, I went to work for Bill in nineteen sixty three. And uh, came here to the Grand Ole Opry, you know, and and uh, worked on, on there with him. And he had uh, that, and he was on Decca Records, you know, he's on a major label. And uh, so it was a good experience for me, you know, because he was a 
be traveled all over the country and out of the country. Of course, I never did go out of the country when I was with him, but but uh, that's where I got my my really I got my start, you know. But I played a lot. Cause before that, I played uh, a lot of clubs in Baltimore. Tell me, if you can, tell me about the the early. I mean, did you have bands when you were in high school? When did you first have the idea in your head of I'm gonna uh, play music, maybe for a profession? Well, you know, it's probably even before high school. I, I heard Earl Scruggs play the banjo, and and I I said that's what I want to do. So I learned to play the banjo, and uh, was still playing it when I got a job with Bill Monroe. Were you any good on the banjo? Because you're known so so much as as guitar player. Were you any good on the banjo? <laughs> they say I was, but it's been so long ago I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, Bill Bill did offer me a job playing banjo. I went and played this show with him, and that was kind of like a uh, uh, audition, you know. I, I played a show with him. Never played a, uh, a tune in my life with Bill, and we just walked out on stage. I thought maybe we'd rehearse, you know, before the show. But we just tuned up, walked out on stage, and uh, and it was a sink or swim, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, good, good enough for Bill Monroe. You must have been pretty good on the banjo. He liked my style. He did. He really did. And, and you know, but you know how young guys are. I like playing with uh, this guy in Baltimore, you know, who had a band. That was a big town from Bluegrass, Baltimore. As far as cities go, you know, there were so many clubs that had Bluegrass bands in those days. The first Bluegrass band to play Carnegie Hall was Earl Taylor and the Stony Mountain Boys, and that was before Flat and Scruggs, before Bill Monroe, before any of the big act. And they were they were a good band just playing clubs there in Baltimore. Let's go back just to, again, if, if that's okay. Uh, before, sure. before uh, so you're in high school or, or, in your, or before high school, you're, you're playing bands, you're, play, you're playing the banjo. Uh, yeah. And there's, I, I, it's hard to imagine a world in where country music is, is the uh, the predominant genre of music because this is just before rock and roll, but right a- around I'm guessing when you're about 14 years old is when Elvis Presley and Bill Haley come on the scene. Did did that sort of explosion change your your world at all? Oh God, they they busted it wide open. Those guys did Jerry Lee Lewis and those guys, you know. And uh, and now the kids in in high school, I, yeah, you're right about that. Because when I was in high school, that's what the kids my age were all listening to, you know. But but I I had already heard Earl Scruggs play the banjo, and it just didn't faze me. That music didn't <laughs> that rock and that early rock and roll, you know. I was I was already ruined because I heard uh, <laughs> this three finger roll that this guy was playing, and it was beautiful, man. That was great. <laughs> so. And, and I never did uh, hook into the rock and roll business, you know. <laughs> you were ruined already, yeah. I was already ruined, yes. <laughs> I read that in, on your biography that the bluegrass scene in southeast Pennsylvania, the sort of Baltimore, Washington, D.C. bar scene, was lively and rough uh, in the early 1960s. <laughs> what does that mean, lively and rough? Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, Baltimore is on the, on, the, uh, on the bay there, you know, and... Uh, a lot of these longshoremen, you know, <laughs> they'd be out on the water for a year, <laughs> and when they come in, you know, they they partied hard, and and they were a rough crowd, man. That you you never knew what was gonna what, what was gonna happen. You, you know how bars are. <laughs> people get uh, drinking, you know, and and some people want to hear the music, and other guys just drink because they want to fight, you know. <laughs> And that happened a lot. I played in bar, in in bars where they would shoot guns, throw knives, everything. <laughs> so a typical set on one of those uh, nights would be how many how many how many hours how many sets of music? Well, you'd play uh, like nine to two, nine o'clock to two o'clock. So you'd play like a forty-five on and fifteen off, and then you know then forty-five on fifteen off till. Uh, Till about that, they they usually close them up at two o'clock, you know. And did that pay all right? Oh no, it didn't pay much. <laughs> no, it didn't pay much. It's just that, you know, I I guess the, the guys that were playing uh, were like me. They they just loved to play music, so that was one outlet for that. You know, was to play in a bar. <laughs> so so were you still working a day job in those days? Yeah. Well, yeah. Off and on, I did. I I. I uh, yeah, I did. I 
But I didn't really have to because I was still single, you see. I mean, what little money I could make playing music, I was fine. Because I still lived at home, too, you know. Then I guess I wasn't. I wasn't really on my own until I went to work for Bill Monroe, and that was 1963, and I was 23 or 24, 24 then, I guess. How did Bill Monroe find you? Uh, I'll tell you what. I was playing a little club in Baltimore, and I was playing banjo with an ex-bluegrass boy. His name was Jack Cook. And Jack had been down here in Nashville and had played for Bill. Uh, he was Bill's guitar player and lead singer. For about three years in the late 50s. So he quit Bill and came up to Baltimore uh, to play with that band I, I mentioned to you there, Earl Taylor and the Stony Mountain Boys. And then he quit that band and got his own club to play, and I started playing banjo with him then. So Bill Monroe came uh, through Baltimore from Nashville to New York City, and he purposely stopped there because he was going to take Jack Cook with him to uh, play guitar and sing lead on this show up in, in New York because Jack knew all of his material, you know. So he took Jack, and Jack said, well, do you have a banjo player? And he said, no. So they were going to do it without a banjo player. And he said, let's just take Dale with us because he liked my playing, Jack did. So that's how I met Bill Monroe, really. So we go to New York City and like I said, I thought we'd go up there and rehearse, you know, before the show. And But actually, we just tuned up and walked out on stage. <laughs> we hit her cold, buddy. <laughs> but, you know, I, I I had been playing 10 years. And I was I was a young guy and could, I could learn fast. You know, kids can learn quick. And and so he couldn't hardly throw anything at me that I couldn't play. I mean, I if I heard somebody else take a break. I, I grabbed it, and I, if it came my turn, I could play what I needed to play, you know. <laughs> and, of course, a lot of banjo playing, too, is backup behind singers, you know. And uh, so I knew I knew the backup stuff that I oh, I just knew it all, you know. And, and, <laughs> and that was the end of my career, man, because he needed a guitar player and a lead singer, like I said. They, so eventually that's what I, when I did go to work for him, was signed up with him. He, that's what I did. I signed up as a guitar player and lead singer. And, and I have never asked seriously went back to doing banjo. Although I quit Bill and went to California, there was a band out there called the Golden State Boys. They were in the, uh, just in the suburbs of L.A. And uh, they had a TV show, and uh, they wanted me to come out there and play. So when I quit Bill Monroe, I went out there. And, uh, and I started working for those guys, but I was playing banjo. Went back to playing banjo. So, uh, but that I didn't I didn't do that very long. Went back to uh, singing lead and playing guitar. And when I got my own band, that's what I did then. Just let me ask you: yeah. was was your voice always there? Because you have such a, um, a recognizable voice. Uh, was it always there as a as a youngster, or did Bill Monroe help you develop it? Uh, he did naturally, I would think, but. Uh, you know, in, in, the, in the early bands I played with, I was not even thinking about singing. Although I knew how to sing, I could sing any part. And uh, I just I just knew parts, you know. when he, I can do tenor, lead, baritone, even bass if it was high enough. <laughs> but, but I wasn't interested in singing. I was interested in playing that banjo. <laughs> but every band I played with, they said, no, you got to sing a part. I'd say, okay, give me a part. I'll sing it. <laughs> And and then when I went to work for Bill, uh, then I'm going to be his lead singer. So I got to know verses to all songs. I got to know all the words to, because I'm the lead singer. And then he comes in on the chorus, sings tenor with me. You know, right? So you got to memorize a uh, hundred songs. Yeah, yeah, right off the bat. You know, <laughs> and that was the hardest part of it all. But then. it doesn't sound like you were uh, pre that you felt the pressure. It sounds like you were uh, kind of young and ready to step right in. You know, I was always up for a challenge. You know, just I always was. I, I, I like that, you know. <laughs> so why'd you leave? I mean, was he not a good boss? Oh, no, he was a good boss. He was. But uh, one time, uh, the fiddle player that was in that band when I went in the Bill Monroe band, he quit. And Bill Monroe told me, I, I was coming back home. I went back to York County for a few days. I had some time off. So he said, now, when you get up there around Baltimore... You see if you can't find us a fiddle player. Well, I happened to run into this guy that I knew 
who was playing with Jack Cook. I went down to see Jack, and uh, and his name is Billy Baker, and he's a great fiddler. I mean, one of the best breakdown fiddlers I ever heard, really. And I said, I just, in passing, I, I mentioned to Billy, I said, you know, Monroe needs a fiddle player. And he said, hey, I'll just go with you back back Tennessee. And he did. He was from way down there in southwest Virginia anyway, and he was a good fiddle player. So I took him back with me, and you were working for Bill, you know, and we played Newport Folk Festival, I remember, and all, all over the place. I, I happen to mention, the, now, now, now we're pretty young, you see, I'm 24 and he's 26, maybe, something like that. And I mentioned to Billy, I said, you know, uh, there's a band out in California offering me a job. And I said, I, just in passing, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about going to California. I was, and so Billy kept, he said, hey, let's quit Bill and go to California. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I like playing for Bill, you know. Well, he kept on no, no, about this. And, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll call them up. See if they want, if, if I can go out, if I come out there, can I bring this fiddle player with me? So I called them up. I called their manager. And uh, the manager said, let me, uh, let us think about that. He said, I'll talk to the band and uh, I'll call you back in 30 minutes. <laughs> so uh, I thought he he's not going to accept that deal because they don't need a fiddle player, you know. Well, in 30 minutes, he called back and said, yeah, come on, bring him with you. <laughs> so, oh, I'd made a deal. Oh, and I, did, I really didn't want to do that, but I, I did. So <laughs> that's why I quit. But hey, kids do crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, I'll tell you this, when you're 25, you're still a kid, and no matter what anybody says. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Tell me about the earliest days of the Grand Old Opry. What, who else was on those bills? Was that real exciting for you? Oh, God, everybody was here. Yeah, Johnny Cash, you name it. Uh, uh, Farron Young, uh, Roy Acuff, you know, he was the old guy. He was the mainstay here. He came to he came to the Grand Ole Opry in 1938 as the first vocalist. Before that, they just had music. They didn't have a, had fiddles and banjos, old-timey music, you know. But Roy Acuff came in 1938, and, and the next guy to come was Bill Monroe in 1939. So he was the second vocalist on that opera show, you know. And from that time on then, you know, people like Ernest Tubb, uh, little Jimmy Dickens, uh, Hank Snow, Hank Williams, all those guys came in later, you know. Did you see Hank and, Williams? You ever saw Hank, see Hank Williams? No, you'd be too young, right? I was too young. My brother did. My older brother. My older brother heard him uh, do his, uh, all of those, uh, they called him back, I don't know, he said seven times. He auditioned, not auditioned, uh, Encore. Encore, yeah. And, uh, uh, but he saw it, and I, and I was, like you say, I was too young. But I'll tell you a little story. So I'm playing this uh, uh, package show in uh, Detroit, Michigan at the Civic Center. And Red Foley was on the show. I remember that. So, uh, and Del Reeves, a whole bunch of Opry acts were on the show, you know. And so I was. we were in the green room, and, uh, and uh, Bill Monroe was talking to uh, Red Foley. And so... But Red, all of a sudden, he stopped and said, hey, Bill, excuse me a minute. He took off and ran out of the room and came back, and he said, you know what? I thought I heard a ghost. It was Hank Jr. on stage, and you could faintly hear him in that dressing room, singing his dad's songs, and he was 14. It was his first big show. <laughs> and Red came back, and he said, I thought I heard a ghost. <laughs> it was Hank Jr. <laughs> Before Hank Jr. went crazy. Huh? Yeah, I tell you, before he went crazy. <laughs> At this time, his his mom was making him sing his dad all of his dad's songs, and boy, he could sing them. Yeah. He could sing just like his dad, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some weird records they made where they sort of made him duet with his his dead father, and uh, they're interesting. Yeah. yeah, they're I don't hate them. They did. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> tell me, did did Monroe coin the term "high lonesome sound"? I mean, it's something I you know when I was reading about you, I keep I kept reading that phrase all over. The high lonesome sound is what Del McCrory <laughs> sounds like. Is that is that Monroe's uh, phrase? And what do you think it means? What does it mean to you? Uh, oh, you know, no, he didn't. He didn't come up with that, or he didn't come up with the bluegrass 
style music. Uh, now his bo- his band was the Bluegrass Boys, you know, because he was from Kentucky. Uh, but that's that's the extent of it. He never came up with any of those phrases, you know. Bill didn't. Other people did, like managers and DJs and stuff like that, you know. But you know, um, well, I tell you what. Now, when I was with Bill, he hired a manager from New York City, and his name was Ralph Rensler. Did you ever hear that guy? Uh, yeah, vaguely. And he actually was a mandolin player, and he played. He was part of the Greenbrier Boys, if you ever heard that name. They had a band in the city. They were a city bluegrass band. Oh, yeah, John, um, what's his John name? John Harold. Yeah, right, right. And Ralph Rensler and Bobby Allen. That was the that was the Greenbrier Boys in the beginning, you know. But Ralph, he quit and uh, came down to Nashville here to manage Bill Monroe. And he told us boys, the rest of the guys in the band, he said, you know, Bill Monroe needs a title. We've got to come up with a title. He needs that. Because his music is different from anybody's. And uh, and the music he, he was playing, he invented himself. He came up with it, you know. Uh, when when he got uh, the last part of that puzzle to come in was Earl Scruggs. When Earl came in, uh, the band, the Bluegrass Boys, back in 1945, I guess it was, that made uh, a, a distinctive sound, you know. And so, so we... I remember he said, King of Bluegrass, or uh, I forget what all the titles he was, kind of, but he uh, he put out all of the uh, publicity, publicity on Bill, you see, and all like that, and that's why he needed this title. So he came up with Father of Bluegrass, and, uh, and that was about the time when Bill actually started getting his own venues, He the Bluegrass Festival started in '65, and uh, and he got his title, Father of Bluegrass, in '63. So this was a time for him, and he, and he was playing folk festivals at that time before the Bluegrass Festival started. Because I played Newport Folk Festival with him, you know, and uh, so uh, he got his own his own style uh, of dates of, of playing dates. And so he didn't have to play any of those package shows anymore with all the country and hillbilly acts, you know. <laughs> Let me remind folks, we're talking to Del McCory, and uh, Del McCory still sings Bluegrass, comes out uh, next l- later in the week, comes out on Friday and June 7th at Symphony Space in uh, in New York City. So you leave, Bill, you leave that band in California, and... Uh, I, I, for the next few years, I think you you put together a, a band, right? The Dixie Pals, and you're playing at night. And I think you're are you working in the day mostly. Are you doing both? Yeah, that's when the day jobs start getting serious. <laughs> what were you because doing by this time? By this time, I was married and starting to raise a family. You know, by the time I got back from California, and so my father-in-law. Like I said, I grew up on a farm. You know, I could do, I could drive or run anything. And so, uh, my father-in-law had a sawmill, and I, I started working for him. And uh, eventually, got a job with my wife's uncle, who had a logging business. And uh, so, but I, I got a band and and got a recording contract. I, I think my first record was with R. Hooley out in Berkeley, California. He. I played this show with Bill up in Berkeley uh, when we were on the West Coast one time. And this guy liked my singing, and he wanted me to do a record. And I said, okay. And so I did a record for Chris, and uh, that was my first one in 1967. And then the next one, I think, was Rounder. I uh, did a record for Rounder in Massachusetts up there in Massachusetts. And then I recorded for Rebel, a whole bunch of little independent labels all through the 60s and the 70s, you know, and, and uh, uh, until I moved. Yeah, and I went back with Rounder. I was with Rounder when I came to Nashville. Let me ask you about songwriting. I mean, are you the kind of guy who keeps a notebook or who works on it every day, or is it just when lightning strikes, or do you write the songs, you know, on your guitar first, you know, write the music first? How does it work for you? Because you've written a lot of songs that lots and lots of other bluegrass acts have done by now. Well, you know, it, it, it's it's all different ways. A lot of times I get a melody in my head, you know. It's funny, you can uh, get a, 
a different melody in your head. And sometimes uh, words, you know, I get words and it, it just comes all different ways if I do write. And I, I don't really write that often. I just, through the years, uh, if I'm going to do a record, you know, uh, it gets down to the wire and I need something. And so I write a song, you know. <laughs> like, a, like I'm under pressure every time I write something. Hmm. Then once in a while I'm not. Uh, once in a while I just get a get an idea for a song and write it down. And then once I moved to town here, the second time, uh, which was 1992, I, then I started recording in this town. Well, there's so many songwriters, and they they send demos, you know, to you if they found out you're going to record. And so I, it made me lazy, you know. <laughs> so I, I just depend on these all these other guys. Now my my manager always wants me to write with songwriters in this town because they always want to write with the artists, you know. Hmm. And and I've done that. I've done that a lot. Yeah. So tell me, your sons uh, Ronnie and Rob joined the band. I think in in the during the eighties, and you moved to Nashville in the in ninety two. How many sons have you got all together? Just those two. The oldest one is a, is my girl, uh, Rhonda. Oh, okay. She's my daughter, you know, but she's just a little bit older than Ronnie. Ronnie plays mandolin, and Rob plays banjo. And you're so lucky that those guys are so amazing. I mean, if your sons hadn't been good, it would you'd have a, a different life. So, you know, it's and it's an I've I've seen you guys play, and you guys are absolutely absolutely amazing. So you moved to Nashville in '92, and that's when things kind of really took off for you. Uh, you were in your early fifties, right? Yeah, sure was. Yeah, yeah. All all the years before that, you know, I was working a day job and playing music and recording records and <laughs> out on the road. But I was lucky that I could. I was fortunate I could play music. I told my the guy that hired me to, to this guy that owned the logger logging operation. I said, "Now, nah, I play music, and I have to." Well, he knew me, and he knew I played music, you know. And he said, "No, man. Anytime you need to take off, it's fine." So I was fortunate that I did that, that I could work for him and, and still play music. But then when I, by the time I moved to Nashville, we were, we were, uh, you know, pretty uh, independent. So I didn't really have to work a day job when I moved here. You know, we, we, we thought, well, we'll go down there and buy a home. And if things don't work out, we'll sell it and come back to this home. Well, I still got that home in PA, but nobody's in it. It's been sitting there all by its lonesome since 1992. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good sign. I mean, it mean you were really embraced, and I don't know. I think it was just a, a question of the right time and place for you. You know, there there was just kind of you sort of put uh, you're credited with putting bluegrass music back on the map, and I think in some ways that's kind of accurate. Do you agree? Well, you know, it could be. You know, I uh, I, I guess. Yeah, I probably had something to do with it, you know, but oh, I you were right. When I when I moved to Nashville, there was still TV here. I mean, there's a lot of TV and and it's good exposure, you know, and and we were fortunate because we were new in town, you know, that we could do all this TV stuff and and played a lot of guest spots on the Grand Ole Opry, and which eventually I joined, you know, they they asked me to join the Opry. And, and so uh, you're right. It was a, it was a good time for me. It was, it was a good time when I moved here to stay. You know, yeah. 1999. You made a great record with Steve Earle, and I saw you guys perform in New York City. And am I right that you played that gig with one microphone that the whole band shared? Yeah, yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at that time I was doing. Uh, that's the way I was. Uh, uh, that I had started doing that. I remember us playing. I remember at one time I owned eight microphones and a couple of them for spares. And we used eight microphones and uh, monitor speakers on the stage, you know. And and I told him, my boys, I said, you know, the last time I enjoyed playing music was when we had one mic and those big speakers that, I, that you, you can hear going out at the audience, you know. And they said, well, Dad, we probably still do that. They make microphones that, see, the mics we were using then were those uh, Shure 48s and 40, no, wait a minute, 40, yeah, I think they were, I forgot the name of them. But anyway, you had to be right on them. You couldn't get back and, and sing in them. You had to sing right on top of them, you know. 
So I figured, well, they don't make the, the old-timey mics anymore. And they said, no, Dad, there's companies here in Nashville that still make those great microphones that you can back off, you know, and, and play and, and have three and four people singing into them. And I said, well, let's try that. So we did. And that's the way I was playing when Steve Earle, well, we played a place called Station Inn here in town. Uh, one night, and they had Steve Earle there too, and he didn't have a band or anything. He he just uh, got straightened out. He'd been in L, out in L.A. for a while, I think, and and he just got kind of dried out, you know. And uh, he said, you, "Would you guys care to back me up, you know? Because we were playing, we were both playing there that night." And I said, "No, that's we can do that." So. We backed him up on that show then. Just uh, Now, we didn't rehearse anything. We just walked out there and backed him up, you know. At the show, he said, would you guys would you guys be interested in uh, doing a record with me? And I said, yeah, probably. And I thought, well, that'd be like two, five years from now, you know. <laughs> and, but it just so happened, he went to Ireland after that, and he wrote this whole record over there in Ireland. He came back. And he wasn't gone long. <laughs> and he said, okay, I've got all this material ready for the record. <laughs> so we went in downtown there and did the record, you know. And then we toured with the record. We toured here in, the, in this country and toured overseas with it both, you know. Yeah, he's he's a pretty prolific guy. Now, I read that that tour stopped because you guys didn't like um, Steve Earle using uh, cursing on stage. Is that is that accurate? We. Hey, I tell you what, I really didn't know what I was getting into, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and when when I did see what I was getting into, I pulled. We were supposed to do. Uh, well, there's that and some other things. You know, I just didn't. I found out, you know, that uh, he's just not a nice guy. <laughs> this guy, this guy, Steve. <laughs> so. Uh, it it uh, it came to a head. We were playing. We, we had I don't know where we. I think we played a tour of the of the United States. We had and wound up doing a thing down on the river here in Nashville. And I blew up and I said, "All right, that's it. I'm, you you go ahead and do that European tour. You just do it by yourself. You know, I'm, we're staying here." <laughs> and we had a. Uh, a show planned. Uh, it was the what, what's the big guy on TV in in uh, New York City? He he just quit not long ago. Dave Letterman. Yeah, we were on Dave Letterman. <laughs> so it, uh, anyway, my manager, I t- I put him to work. <laughs> he had to kind of get that go between, you know, between uh, me and and Steve. <laughs> so he got it all worked out, and uh, and we went and did the. Uh, Okay, so we could go up there and do the Letterman show, and uh, I didn't realize it, but there was there was a, a, a busload of people that came from Nashville to New York City to the Letterman show, and it just so happened the song we were going to do, me and the band, Steve was going to do his song, and we were going to do our song, and our song was uh, Nashville Cats. <laughs> When we did Nashville Cats, that place tore apart at the seams, man. They were screaming because they were all from Nashville, and I didn't even realize it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Letterman, he loved that, you know. And anyway, so we did. We went over and did the European tour, and it kind of smoothed out. But, you know, I had to I had to grin and bear it. I did not like his language, though, because I, I don't have that on my shows, you know. And he he really treated us good on that tour, though. <laughs> From that time on, you know. <laughs> now sometimes you got to put your foot down. Yeah, you do. You really have to. You know, my boys were. I don't like that kind of influence, you know, on them. Because when I'm gone, they're going to have to carry on, and I don't want them carrying on a show like Steve Earle would. I just don't want that, you know. You guys still wear suits, right? And you, you take care of your hair, right? There's a lot of uh, hair brushing going on before a show, and you, you guys always look good. Well, yeah, I guess we do. <laughs> Sometimes the hair don't look so good. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I was always used to wearing a suit on a, on stage when I played, you know, because 
this way we always did, right from from before I even went to work for Bill Monroe. And then when I went to work for Monroe, he, he always wore suits. And of course, he wore a hat, and I had to wear a hat with Bill. But I never was fond of a hat. I don't know why. Do you listen to records at home you know, that, that we would be surprised about? Like, did you go out and buy the Bee Gees records, or, you know, is there any, or is it just all bluegrass all the time? Well, you know, you know, you know I like other styles of music, uh, but but I, not enough to really sit down and listen, you know. If I hear them in passing, you know, that's fine. I, I might hear them one time, and that's enough. But if I want to listen to something, you know what I do? I listen to Bill Monroe in the middle 40s with Latin Scrubs. <laughs> I do. You know, they set the standard, and you know, when I listen to that, I think, you know what? Every there's not a weak link in that band. That band had had it all. I mean, and they were they were like different players and singers that came together to make a great sound. And you know, it's a funny thing, but they did. They set they set the pattern, buddy. And no matter what anybody says, <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah, it's that. That's that's. It's never going to get better than that. I, I agree with you. A uh, couple of years ago, you made a great record called Dell and Woody, where you wrote some fantastic songs uh, from some Woody Guthrie uh, lyrics. Apparently, he, when he died, there was just thousands of pages of lyrics for s- songs that never got melodies, uh, and you set a bunch of them. I think about a dozen of them to uh, to melodies. Those are some great songs. Boy, that guy's a great lyricist. Yeah, I know. You know, his daughter, Nora, they wanted to, she called for us to come and play this tribute show to her dad out there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we, we went and, and we sang a few of his songs. You know, there's a lot of a lot of bands on that show. She asked me after the show, she said, would you be interested in writing melodies to my dad's, some dad's some songs, you know, we found? And I said, yeah, I would, you know. I was figuring, well, she must send me a couple, you know, and, and here she sent me 26 songs to put melodies to. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, i got to go to work if I'm going to do anything, you know, with this. And yeah. So I actually put melodies to, to uh, 16, I think it was. Let's talk about the brand-new record. It's called Del McCrory Still Sings Bluegrass, and that's kind of a nod to your 1968, 50 years ago record called Del McCrory Sings Bluegrass. And I read a great quote from you, which I love. It says, whatever strikes me to do, I'll do it without wrecking things. I mean, it sounds like a, a perfect formula. As long as you don't wreck it, who cares? Because there's a lot of people who have um, very specific ideas about what is bluegrass music and what isn't bluegrass, uh, and it seems like you don't, you don't care so much about those boundaries. Well, you know, if I hear a good song, you know, I want to, I, I want to sing it. That's funny. Uh, but you, and you know, all music is related. I, I, I used to think, you know, when I was listening to Bill Monroe and Flatt and Scruggs back in the early days, you know, that, that, uh, that, you know, that they, in other words, I thought uh, they never even listened to any other kind of music. Now I learned in later in life that they had they had people that they were hearing when they were young too. Mm. And uh, 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 Bill Monroe used to go when he had a little time off when he was young. He would go down there to New Orleans and listen to those jazz players, you know. And uh, <laughs> so, and he also played with a guy that used to uh, come up to to uh, that uh, Ohio County where where Bill grew up in Kentucky there. And he would come up there on a on a ship or a boat, you know, a paddle wheeler, I reckon. He'd come up there in springtime and stay all summer and, and work, work around in the, on the farms and stuff around there. And he played music, and Bill would play with him. And he was a, he was a black guy. His name was Arnold Schultz. And, and so... Bill's music, a lot of his things, you know, are are jazz influenced, and you know. But I never realized that. I just thought he invented all that stuff. But you know, he did invent things. But you know, a style is a style, and a lot of times you get that from somebody. And, and he, he, uh, he. I tell you a little example. Me and the boys, you know, we recorded a, a record with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Right. And we went on the road with that thing, too, for a couple of years, you know. <laughs> and anyway, and it worked out great. You know, the only thing is, 
uh, like when you do a live show, the horns are really loud. Those <laughs> brass is r- really loud. So we had to have our sound man go with us. <laughs> and uh, we had mics, you know, and uh, and he could he could adjust it to where we were just as loud as that brass was, you know. <laughs> and we uh, we my five piece band would be standing on stage, and the jazz band would be to our right, and we did all that stuff together, man. We'd just do the whole show. But anyway, I got away from them and the subject. Bill, Bill, uh, uh, when we first was thinking about doing this record. Uh, my son Ronnie, he said, uh, "Did you guys ever hear of a, a tune called Muhlenberg Joy?" And uh, yeah, they said, "Oh yeah, we know that. It, we call it Muhlenberg Joy, and not Muhlenberg." Anyway, uh, Bill, Bill had heard that on a radio when he was had a wreck and was in the hospital, and it was played on the radio. And he he uh, when he got better, where he could play the mandolin. It was a tune that he just, he played, and then he later recorded it. And so when they, when they, when Ronnie played it and the jazz band played it, they, they were playing it in the same key, and uh, there's only one chord different in the song. But, but, uh, yeah, that, so there you go. They both were playing, they were playing bluegrass and jazz, and it went right together, you know, and, and so we put it on the record. <laughs> So tell me, how'd you pick songs for uh, Del McCurry Still Sings Bluegrass? Because uh, there's a real wide uh, bunch of songwriters on this one. How do you pick them? Well, you know, like I said before, a lot of times uh, people send me, you know, if I'm going to re- uh, record, they'll send me songs, demos here, you know. But And then I, I I had some that was in the back of my mind that I'd heard maybe. and It's just a variety of things, and I get them from all different places, you know. Yeah, just uh, it's hard to say where I'll where where I'll get one. And a lot of times, the songwriters when they know you're going to record, they say, "Now, look, what kind of what kind of song you need?" And I, I'll tell them, "I don't I don't know what I need till I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hear it first. <laughs> this, this this record has piano. It has a little bit of electric guitar on it. Did people get on your case? I mean, are there bluegrass purists who get on your case about that stuff? They're liable to. <laughs> they haven't yet. <laughs> but, you know, the electric guitar player is my grandson. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm telling you, that guy can play a guitar, man. He's only about 20. That's a proud grandparent moment. Tell me, was the whole record recorded quite quickly? I mean, how how do you guys record a record these days? Yeah, it, it was actually pretty fast. I think we, we might have roughed them and put them down in about three days, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I think we did. I I swear I don't remember now, and it ain't been that long ago either. That's amazing because the record sounds so arranged and polished, and just it technically, just sounds sounds wonderful. It's very. I, I, this is a really fantastic uh, record. Uh, Del McCoy still sings bluegrass. Uh, do you think there's still a way, f- an organic way, for new bluegrass musicians to to get into bluegrass? Well. You know, yeah, I've thought about that a lot. You know, I guess I had my ways, but, you know, these younger people, they have to, I guess they have to find another route than what I, I had it pretty hard, you know, really. And not that I'm complaining because I enjoyed every minute of it, you know. But but I, I think it's, in a way, it's harder to break in, it seems, now than it was then, although... You know, they have so many uh, things that they can learn from, you know, like uh, learn how they can see guys on, on the screen here. They can see where they put their fingers to play and when they're <laughs> learning, you know, and, and all that, which when I was watching Earl, it just looked like a it looked like a blur, you know. <laughs> I was wanting to watch Earl sign the first time in 1955. He was. They introduced Flat and Scruggs, and he ran out there and hit that microphone with a train 45, just flying, you know, <laughs> sparks flying off of that banjo. And and I thought, well, I'll not learn nothing from him because he's playing too fast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but these days, you know, they have instruction things, you know. No, it's, it makes it a lot easier for them to learn. But, but we have a lot more bluegrass uh, music. 
musicians or bands and, than we did back in my day, you know. Yeah, which is good. It's a good sign. It is. What else do you like to do when you're not uh, when you're not on tour, when you're not working on music? What do you do to just to goof off? Well, you know, I, I don't have any, uh, like I don't have, mostly, i tell you what I like to do. I like to mow. <laughs> so yeah, I've got a, a zero turn mower here and I, I have a, quite a bit to mow. And I like to just do that, you know, and, and, and like trim bushes and stuff like that because it's, a lot like uh, when I was growing up and we'd mow hay and pick corn and, and uh, all that stuff, you know. It's a lot like the way I grew up. And I, I like to do that yet. I like to be outside and and, and uh, just do anything that's outside, you know. Yeah. Um, how many how many dates a year do you guys still play? How how, how much are you personally on the road? Well, you know, I I probably only do maybe a hundred and fifty. Maybe only only a hundred and fifty. That's a lot of dates. I mean, you're you're almost eighty years old, right? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I feel like I'm a hundred and fifteen. <laughs> no, no, I feel good for my age. It's it's funny, you know. I I tell people, you know, I I couldn't imagine me not singing and playing because I just so enjoy being on the stage. You know, I really do. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I feel good enough to do it, you know. And these these young guys, they they have a hard time keeping up with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you are on the road right now. Folks can go to delmacoryband dot com for information. You're going to be in uh, Virginia, and Wisconsin, California, Colorado, Kentucky, and more. Folks can see all those dates, and of course, right here in New York City at Symphony Space. Uh, you don't get to New York City too much, and uh, it's. I just want to reiterate, I've seen your band live, and absolutely fantastic. Uh, I, I highly recommend folks go down there and uh, and, and check you out. While, uh, although it doesn't sound like you're going to be quitting anytime soon. I appreciate that, Mike. Well, no, no, I, I'm not, you know. Uh, I know a lot of guys, when they get my age, they, they do their last tour, and then, then in about two years, they do their last tour again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Pick a song from this new record that we can play here to to close things up. Which one's your favorite? Well, you know, I don't know if I have a favorite, but I do like that hot wire. Right, with it's your grandson. Yeah, and it's something different, you know. Uh, <laughs> John Camp, now he's a great writer, you know. And, and when I heard that, I thought, you know, that's that's great love. A lot of people know about hot wiring cars, you know, and then what it is, is is he's got this girlfriend that her dad's in prison for hot wiring cars, no doubt. <laughs> Don't say exactly. But the, the this this beautiful girl took up her dad's habits, and she hot wired everything. Hot wired his ceiling fan. <laughs> hot wired his cars and all that stuff. <laughs> And I like that, you know. I just like that idea. <laughs> it's it, it, yeah, but it showcases the band too, really, really well. I think, you know. Yeah, it does. Uh, from from Del McCrory still sings bluegrass. Uh, it's coming out next week, and he'll be here June seventh in Symphony Space in New York City. Boy, what an honor to talk to you! Just so fun. I just love all these stories. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, good time day. Hope I see you when we get there. You will. I'm def. I'll definitely be there. I cannot wait. And good, I'll look forward to seeing you. (laughs) All right, Dale. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye now. My baby got a talent she don't like to talk about. It sent her daddy to the pen and he still ain't got it. It runs in the family like some kind of burning fire Her kin can get a free ride and it don't matter where they are She hot-wired my hot blade, she hot-wired my coffee pot I do believe she's hot-wired, dang near everything i got She climbed upon a ladder, hot-wired my ceiling fan When she came back down to earth again, she hot-wired her man Hot-wired, hot-wired, hot-wired
walked out in the barn one day and hot-wired the cow. You don't believe me, won't you try to milk her now? She hot-wired the doorbell, now sounds just like a train. If you hold your finger on it, it'll hot-wire your brain. She might hot-wire your Chevy, she might hot-wire your Ford. If she ever gets to heaven, she might hot-wire the Lord. When she laid her hands upon me, man, you should have seen the spark. When that hot-wiring woman went hot-wired the heart. Hot-wire. Hot-wire. Change your strings on your flat top guitar. She'll done have you electrified like some kind of rock and roll star. Can't wait to plug it in, can't wait to turn it on. We'll get this whole house rocking like the doggone Rolling Stones. Blue lights started flashing, I said, girl, you gone too far. When the police wasn't looking, she went hot water police car. Well, her daddy's doing eight to ten, but he left his two behind. Every night his lovely daughter likes a hot wire, my mind. Hot fire. Woo! Hot fire. Hot fire.